How much would I have to pay you to give up just one of your civil or political rights? Let's say free speech. There's no amount of money for not criticizing the government because you would be destroying one of the pillars of democracy. And in my opinion, that's unacceptable. It seems like an easy no at first. But what if someone offered you millions? So for me, for me, it would be five million euros. What about 10 million? I don't know, 50 million dollars not to do it in public and privately more than that, a hundred million dollars. Or billions? It would have to be like the entire nation budget. Now there's someone who knows the worth of their speech. But it's all relative to your existing access to wealth, isn't it? For you and I, lucky to have more than our basic needs met, we'd have to be offered a pretty hefty price to give up our right to speak freely. But for many others, struggling to feed their children, purchasing heat for their homes, buying a pair of shoes, things look dramatically different. When we think about issues of equality in the U.S., most people immediately think of wealth inequality. And with 1% of the population owning nearly 40% of the wealth, it's pretty understandable why. Right, but we think less about the relationship between wealth inequality and political inequality. Do we need one more than the other to have equality? If you're in enough economic desperation, isn't there always some price you'd accept to give up civil and political rights? I'm Claudia Flores, law professor at Yale Law School. I'm Tom Ginsberg, a professor of law at the University of Chicago. And this is Entitled, a podcast about why rights matter and what's the matter with rights. So, Claudia, last episode we talked about two components of the right to equality. Equality of civil and political rights and equality of socioeconomic rights. These are sort of two categories rights are generally put into. Civil and political rights related to citizenship and participation in society. Speech, voting, arbitrary detention, privacy. They're often related to government interference with your autonomy. And socioeconomic rights. These are the rights to food, shelter, water, health, education. They're often related to minimum entitlements or services. It's not a perfect division, but it's a useful one. Right. And so there's often the question of which of the two is more foundational to an equal society. In other words, would you rather live in a country where everyone is equal in terms of wealth, but has few freedoms, or a country in which you have total freedom, but there's great inequality of wealth? Obviously, we all want to live in a world that maximizes both. But in order to get there, there is a bit of a chicken and the egg problem. Do you need strong civil and political rights to get to socioeconomic rights? Or do you need socioeconomic rights first in order to get to strong civil and political rights? Can people be worried about basic shelter and really participate meaningfully in a democracy? More and more, there's recognition that some measure of socioeconomic rights must underpin civil and political rights. That is, to have any power at all in politics, you have to have some economic security, some education, some guarantee that our medical needs will be taken care of. In contrast, in the U.S., we have strong civil and political rights laid down in our Constitution, but I don't think anyone would point to the U.S. as a shining pinnacle of economic and social equality. I sometimes wonder whether strong civil and political rights themselves might come with some unexpected consequences that actually made the road to economic equality more difficult. Could this commitment to civil and political rights actually in some cases provide a smokescreen so that we ignore other basic rights or basic mandates that are really essential for equality? To get an answer, we turn to the expert. I'm Margaret Huang. I am the president and CEO of the Southern Poverty Law Center. 
in Montgomery, Alabama. Although we haven't been great at defending them for everyone, the U.S. has always had a strong commitment to civil and political rights, stronger than most other countries. And yet, on human rights essential for socioeconomic equality, the right to food, housing, health care, we've been behind much of the world. Could these two things be correlated? I feel like I'm constantly running into that same obstacle that, that human rights are perceived as foreign, they're perceived as communist, they're perceived as irrelevant in the U.S. context. And yet people have found human rights almost in some ways accidentally because we don't teach them in our elementary schools and we don't introduce them to children here the way that it happens in so many other countries. And they discover the beauty of human rights language. And it really resonates, particularly the right to equality and thinking about how every human being is entitled to these rights without barriers uh, or discrimination. And so I I find myself, um, and I have over the last many years, really wrestled with the question of how do we bring human rights back home to the United States? There's this thought that human rights are not necessary in the U.S. because we have a constitution that is a live constitution. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a constitution that's relevant to the population and that is well respected by our courts, uh, depending on how they interpret what that respect means. Um, but there has been a change in the language that's used by advocacy organizations. We see it, for example, in, you know, the ACLU's Twitter feed. They use things like right to education and they're talking about socioeconomic rights, which I think many folks who knew the ACLU 10 years ago would not have believed. What role is this language playing in a society that actually has a constitution that's protective? What, why do you even think it would need to go in this direction or why are advocates feeling the need to go in this direction? You know, I think some of this connects back to the whole current debate on critical race theory, because I think critical race theory challenges the notion that we have we have all the legal protections we need in our current society, because clearly they're not working for a huge number of us living in the country. And I think the reason that advocates have been looking for an alternative is because when they turn to the law, it doesn't answer what are clearly problems and needs in the country that should be addressed by law. So it's not a surprise to see even the ACLU, but so many organizations recognizing that economic, social, and cultural rights are as important here as they are anywhere in the world. It's just taken us such a long time to recognize it. Um, I think class was something that the communists focused on. And in the great Cold War era of human rights, we didn't embrace anything that was the focus of communist states. And I think one of the reasons we still struggle with that here is because it's been caught up in the rhetoric um, that's been around so long about how the United States is all about individual rights and how we don't we don't embrace anything on the economic, social, cultural side, particularly talk discussions about class. It's one of the reasons why the unions have struggled for so long because the unions were such an obvious place for there to be unity across various lines of identity because of shared class experience. And yet unions are struggling really terrifically right now, except in the nonprofit sector where they're making great headway. I, I do hear you saying, though, I mean, that a lot of our 
black and white approach to socioeconomic rights and unwillingness to think about class has is like vestiges of a fear of communism, right? That if you let any of those ideas into our version of the liberal society, that somehow they're dangerous. Yeah. You know, you see that actually in the critiques of AOC and the squad and others, right? It, it They get called communist all the time because they talk about class and they talk about economic disparity and they talk about inequality. And right. so it, it is the first thing that comes out. And I think they embrace that critique, but many people don't. And yeah. for institutions in particular, it can be very, very risky to, to allow that kind of rhetoric to, to taint you uh, with your supporters and donors. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I, um, in, in, uh, we had our second class, uh, this weekend and we were talking about socioeconomic rights and the students always start from, uh, those don't exist here, you know? And it's like, well, let's talk about some of our programs, you know, like we do have public education, we do have social security, you know, we do have all of these things that start kind of, you know, that are not great, but they are, they are along the principles of some kind of social safety net. Um, So it is really, um, it's, it's almost like a theoretical opposition. And it has bite. We often say, oh, you know, there's the stereotype, our tradition is about civil and political rights. We don't get into that, but of course at the state constitutional level, we, that's not true at all. And healthcare, you know, we're getting there. I think a lot, the majority of the people in the country think it's a human right. It's just yeah. a matter of getting our federalist uh, governmental system to deliver. Well, I guess after listening to Margaret, I believe even more than before that we really do have both kinds of rights in our tradition. Um, You know, they may not be mentioned in the Constitution, but we have lots of statutory protections. We have a welfare state, even if it's not quite, you know, as sophisticated or as comprehensive as that of Sweden. You know, there are enough elements there that you can say Americans do have a certain set of economic and social rights. I think that's right. But we don't talk about them as rights as much as we talk about our civil and political rights. And I wonder if there's a price to be paid there. That's true. It's also the case that we're now seeing a kind of a great sort in the United States where the rights you have are going to depend on which state you live in. That's right. And so we see a lot of inequality in the rights to education, for example, depending on which state you live in and how the state administers education. Um, but you can also see that in the context of health care. So possibly because we don't think of health as a right, we don't think of education as a right, we're able to tolerate larger amounts of inequality within both of those systems. If we started thinking them, of them as a right, then we might feel more compelled to ensure that everybody really and truly has access. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, you do see see the idea of rights all over our political discourse. It's just that we talk about them slightly differently than than others and not really as minimal entitlements, more about our ability to exercise voice over the various things that we think we're entitled to. Right. We want to influence the outcome, but we don't always think about what the outcome should be. So, Tom, you may have noticed we've been referencing one particular organization a lot during this conversation. Did you catch it? Is it The ACLU? Exactly. The American Civil Liberties Union. And I know that you're a card-carrying member. So when it comes to defending civil and political rights in the U.S., the ACLU has been a central player for decades. But that reputation is beginning to change, right? That's right. And it's causing a huge controversy in the rights community. And if we're going to say that civil and political rights are foundational to an equitable society, we should figure out what this controversy actually indicates. We'll give the ACLU a call after the break.
If you're getting a lot out of this podcast, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show you should check out. It's called Capital Isn't. Capital Isn't uses the latest economic thinking to zero in on the ways capitalism is, and more often isn't, working today. Join Vanity Fair contributing editor Bethany McLean and distinguished professor of economics Luigi Zingales as they explain how capitalism can go wrong and what we can do about it. Listen to Capital Isn't, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you would agree that you want to live in an equal world. But when it comes to equality of civil and political rights, it isn't always as pretty as it sounds. Yeah, no one ever said more political equality translates into more political morality. Equal means equal. And equal political rights means equal political rights for everyone. And that idea was put to the test in 1977 in a case that would come to be known as the Nazis in Skokie, Illinois. The facts of the case are these. Last spring, the National Socialist Party of America, self-styled Nazis and admirers of Adolf Hitler, announced their intention to stage a march through Skokie, Illinois. They would wear full Nazi regalia, including the swastika. Skokie is a suburb of Chicago. 40,000 of its 70,000 residents are Jewish, 7,000 survivors of the Nazis' World War II concentration camps, many others relatives of concentration camp victims. Skokie officials, citing the possibility of the marches provoking violence, quickly passed ordinances that would prohibit the march. The Nazis, represented by the American Civil Liberties Union, challenged the ordinances in state court. The case eventually went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. In what became a landmark First Amendment decision, the court acted to allow the Nazis to march. At the time, most people had the same reaction and could not comprehend why in the world the ACLU, a left-wing liberal organization, would legally defend the Nazis' right to assemble. Ralph Temple is the legal director of the National Capital Area Civil, Civil Liberties Union. Mr. Temple, I take it the ACLU sees today's decision as a, as a victory of principle. What is that principle? The principle is, is that history has taught time and again, and the people who wrote the Constitution, those geniuses, Thomas Jefferson, knew that free speech is indivisible. That if you carve out an exception to it, I'm not talking about uh, uh, pornography or libel, uh, if you carve out an exception to it based on psychic injury, based on provocation, based on uh, the vileness of the advocacy itself, that eventually uh, that exception will eat up the right itself. The argument that the ACLU made at the time was an argument about equality, an equal right to assemble that included everyone, or it's not really equal at all. You're Jewish. Uh, have you caught uh, uh, heat or, or uh, questions, uh, serious questions about why, as a Jew, you would defend the Nazis, get yourself yeah. in that position? Yeah. What do you say? I, uh, I think that it is most fitting uh, that we represent them, that Jews represent the Nazis. First of all, because I think that the representation of this free speech principle should be in a context where it is quite clear that the advocacy of the principle gives no legitimization to the uh, vile views that are being promulgated under its protection. And secondly, because uh, as a Jew, I feel that there is no, there is no group that is in greater needs of firm restraints on what an outraged majority can do 
to a detested minority. In this case, appropriately detested. The ACLU has started to change their focus in the last few years. They've always done some work on non-discrimination, racial equality, ethnic equality, gender equality, but they've really started to focus more and more on access to these basic socio and economic entitlements that we were talking about, ensuring that people have access to health, ensuring that they have equal access to education, and that's created some controversy. The ACLU's been having the same conversation we've been having on this episode over the last few years. And while we've said political and civil rights may need to be the foundation of equality, they've decided to go beyond those traditional rights. We can't put our eggs in one basket. That's Jamil Dakwar. He is the director of the ACLU's Human Rights Program, and he has been a leader in this field for quite a long time. My job is, is one that is quite unique for the ACLU because the ACLU is not seen as an organization that fully embraces human rights. And I'm kind of the person who's reminding everyone that we have to be more serious about our uh, commitment to everyone's rights and including human rights, particularly because of the way that the, this country has over the past you know, decades and centuries have not taken seriously uh, everyone's human rights, and particularly marginalized and vulnerable communities. Essentially, he's the person that's supposed to help expand their mandate. It has to be a different kind of way of spreading our resources and time and think much broadly about a change that would be more lasting and much more far-reaching if we add to our arsenal, our, our toolbox, additional ways to engagement, and, and more importantly, realizing that, that there are certain connections between different rights, and there are not, you can't really silo them. So we talk more about, like, you know, reproductive rights, which has been an issue that the ACL worked on for many, many years. But we also say now reproductive right or right to abortion is a healthcare issue. So we're trying to connect it to the conversations about healthcare, which is an a social economic right issue. Most recently, the shift that we did uh, over the past two or three years uh, with, in support of the Black Lives Matter movement and organizations, black-led organizations, in support of their shifting the narrative around policing. Uh, but they're also embracing the idea that we need to also work more proactively in support of systemic equality. We can't just be on the defense. We have to proactively support initiatives that really advocate for racial justice and economic justice, not just racial justice. For example, another example is the way that the ACLU prioritized the issue of reparation. The call for us to lobby the U.S. Congress to pass H.R. 40 that would would not necessarily create reparations or appropriate reparations, but would just only establish a federal commission uh, by Congress that would look into the possibility of providing reparations for slavery and, and for other racial injustices, historic racial injustices. That, though, happened because we had people who were much more committed organizationally. We've been much more re- seeing the connections between his- racially historic injustices. Some of the things that we've worked on over the past hundred years of the ACLU, but would not really take the lead on or would not be at the, with other organizations, particularly black-led organizations, in fighting for uh, recognizing the importance of reparations. And yet, the ACLU has, has been doing that uh, in the last uh, several years. Yeah, so the ACLU has been de- doing a lot of really amazing work in the area of what we would think of as traditionally socioeconomic rights. Uh, so they've been doing a lot of work 
on improving conditions within prisons, on ensuring that uh, immigrants have basic rights. They were leaders in battling uh, much of the Trump administration's efforts to restrict immigration at the border. Recently, they've been doing work on police violence. So a lot of this work really has a focus on poor populations and communities of color and ensuring that they have access to basic services and rights. Yeah, I kind of wonder about it. After all, it is the American Civil Liberties Union. It's not entitled the American Socioeconomic Redistribution Union. You know, I get the connection that they're arguing for, but I also wonder a little bit about drift from their core mission. I may be a card-carrying member, but I am a card-carrying member of lots of different organizations. Why would I want them to take this project on? You could certainly say maybe the ACLU should just focus on uh, defending unpopular speech, which is what they were doing before. Uh, I think a lot of the lawyers at the ACLU feel now that they want to use their limited resources to really make it possible for people who have not effectively been able to exercise their rights to do so. Uh, And the way to do that is to start thinking about these other rights that are enabling. Of course, there would be always... Uh, push back against uh, progress. I mean, there's never been, I think, a cause or a advancement without pushbacks. And I think it's usually coming from more uh, traditional view of don't want to uh, change the the status quo. You don't want to uh, rock the boat too too much. I think that the changes that we are making are significant, but I don't think that they're that radical, to be honest. We're not saying, oh, we're giving up on the legal system in the United States or we're going into the revolution. <laughs> we're not giving up on the, and, you know, the fundamentals of, of the U.S. system and, and democratic system. And because what's, what is the meaning of the ACLU fighting for free speech for people who can actually effectively exercise their free speech? So with the ACLU's history and its current expansion, perhaps no one else sits more at the crossroads of this question of the balance and relationship between civil and political rights and socioeconomic rights. So what does Jamil think about the question of the trade-offs between them? Well, you know, I think I'm not going to put myself in those two positions. You know what? Because I think they're missing the mark on some important question, which is, have we really reached liberation and freedom for all? If you can convince me that you can liberate and give people freedom and enjoyment of their rights by just taking all these rights on one, one side, civil political rights, I'll be with you. But the fact is, and the truth is, and the history and experience of the last decades, in fact, centuries, have taught us that without that, without liberation and freedom for all, you will not be able to be able to reach that moment. So you really have to simultaneously work on all these fronts. And there's no other. It's just like, you know, saying, oh, we have too many, too many people in our society. We can't care for all those people in our society. We have to exclude people because we don't. We can't care for them, and we have to do. This is like the most fascist thing that I've ever heard. Like we can, you know, we have to really only focus on one certain areas. And remember, who are the people who are usually making those arguments? I tend to believe, maybe with exceptions, most of those people are the ones that are well off. They're never really left been into those kinds of situations of not having the adequacy. Uh, the fundamental uh, adequate protections with their food, security, housing, shelter, work, uh, education, quality education, healthcare, and all these things that you need in order to, to prosper, right? And that is where it is. If you really put them in that position, I think that they will totally change their... And that's what these movements are making a lot of people, and particularly white Americans. That's why 
is changing somewhat, is that they are, even if they're not, and there are a lot of white Americans who are poor, who don't have those, those rights, and there are certain reasons why they don't have those rights. And, and so that this is a struggle for not only for part of the community, not only for communities of color. This is a struggle really across, uh, you know, uh, uh, races, uh, racial groups, ethnic, religious groups, what have you, uh, social groups. And, and I think the fundamental thing is to ask, how do we get to this full, you know, liberation and, and, and freedom for all, where people feel that they can really express themselves but as the Nazi in Skokie case shows, in the U.S., we don't all agree on how far equality of freedom and liberation should go. And this gets even more complicated when we start to think about equality at an international level. Yep. And Margaret Huang points this out, too. When you're dealing with billions of different perspectives on what equality means, whose idea of equality is going to get prioritized? I started as a women's rights advocate. We ran into this question all the time. I did a project on women's economic rights, and we were exploring how women were affected by these um, chains of production. And so women were typically at the bottom of the chain of production. They were doing piecemeal work in their homes in rural parts of Southeast Asia and then selling their products. And it would you know, go up the chain being sold to finally a consumer sitting in the United States. And the women would be paid cents to produce each garment or each piece. And we would be paying a substantial amount of money, but the women didn't see any of that. And there was a real question about, did the women benefit from this global subcontracting opportunity? And the women loved it because they got to work at home and they could care for their children and they could prepare meals and, and do things on their own time. And they thought this was a huge benefit to be able to have those jobs. And yet from our perspective, it felt like the grossest exploitation of those workers. And so we've always had these challenges, you know, what, what one culture or one community or one perspective perceives as protecting of their rights or, or, or meeting the, the needs of the individual, somebody else perceives them as harmful or um, denigrated. So this is something we've struggled with for a long time. I don't think there's an easy answer, but I do think that the solution will come through open dialogue and a, a genuine commitment to protecting rights. Because I may not always agree with a woman living in a different context about what her rights should be versus mine, but I can listen and I can appreciate her and understand her perspective. And ultimately I can advocate for what she wants or what her community wants as representative of what they need. And I would hope that that, that community would do the same for mine or you know, any other community. And right now we don't we don't have that practice. We're almost set up as adversaries. Um, we can't we can't accept that rights might look different in different contexts, or that people might have different needs and demands in different places. So that is probably one of the drawbacks of the international human rights system is that it it tries to it tries to make it to make every person in the world eligible, but but in doing so, it does place limitations and restrictions on how responsive the rights regime can be to different different communities and different cultures. 
you know, from my point of view, as someone who spent a lot of time in East Asia, you know, I think societies really do differ on the relationship among these rights and on the relative priority. You know, there is certainly a kind of claim by many governments in Asia that they're prioritizing economic and social goods over civil and political rights. You know, I think that's certainly a false choice. There's no reason they couldn't be more democratic. It's sometimes a, just an excuse or justification for why. And yet I also have no doubt that if we were to go and survey people in different countries, different cultures, they'd have different perspectives on the relative balance among these things, on the value of democracy, on the value of free speech. So, you know, I'm not sure there's a universal answer to this problem. But you all, we also can't underestimate the status quo, right? So I do think there's, like you just said, there's no reason that a government couldn't focus on socioeconomic equality while still respecting civil and political rights. Those two things don't need to be in tension. The only reason we even talk about them together is because you and I are assuming that we need citizens to demand that governments actually put structures in place to respect socioeconomic rights, right? That's why we need the civil and political rights. That's why we need the speech, the freedom of speech, the freedom to vote, because that's how we force our governments to do what we want them to do. Uh, but there's no reason a government couldn't set a priority for socioeconomic rights while still respecting civil and political rights. Right. I mean, the Chinese government basically said, look, we're going to do this whether you demand it or not, we recognize that this is kind of a core underlying expectation of good government, so we're going to go for it. But for many other countries, you wouldn't have that. You wouldn't have a government prioritizing distribution and the wealth of the people um, if they could avoid it. Why would governments avoid prioritizing equality of distribution of resources? Well, the fact is, relatively small number of governments around the world are democratic. The political economy of most countries is that a small elite controls the vast majority of the wealth. And there's no reason that they're voluntarily going to share that unless there's a public demand to do so. Think about Russia and the Russian economy, right? I think that's kind of the default position of societies. And it's only, you know, with the development of modern democracy that you even have the possibility that people could demand uh, a real share. That's why it's even worth talking about civil and political rights versus socioeconomic rights in the context of equality. Because when we say that the government is not motivated to do this without being forced to do so, what we're really saying is that an elite that has captured the government would rather just keep things as they are, meaning a small percentage of the people taking up most of the resources, unless there's some mechanism within which the poorer masses can demand that they do things differently. And that's what civil and political rights get us. You know, there's a kind of deep question underlying this about the basic preconditions for democracy and free speech and civil and political rights. I know that they are in the international human rights instruments and many governments have signed on to deliver those things. But the fact is we both know that it's a relatively small percentage of countries that do so. Actually, since about 2017, less than half the countries in the world have been democracies and less than half the people in the world live in democracies. And those numbers are declining. But there is hope that if we can find points of connection, whether they be civil and political or socioeconomic, we may be able to bring both closer to equality for everyone. I think that's really interesting that we started with this premise that it's obvious that we're all equal. And yet over time, what we've recognized is that no, no uh, we're really not. And one of the biggest challenges has always been that the struggle to demand 
equal rights for in for communities for particular communities always runs up against other communities who are making the same demand and rather than strengthening and building collective power in that demand it so often has resorted into no we need to make sure our our constituency is protected our our rights are protected and i think that's actually been one of the biggest barriers um, over the history of time is that you haven't seen different marginalized or vulnerable communities reaching across lines of separation and saying we should be fighting for one another. When it does happen, it's incredibly beautiful um, and I think even more powerful, but it is difficult to see. So when you ask what's missing, I think it's that intersectionality, that that recognition that you can't lift up one group and not not try to lift up all of the other groups at the same time. And it's why it's been so hard for us to really make advancement. So Tom, we started with this question at the beginning of the episode. What comes first, right? What, where is our chicken and where is our egg? Do we want civil and political to lay a foundation for socioeconomic or do we want socioeconomic to lay a foundation for civil and political? Where do you fall after having had this discussion? Look, for us and in the United States, I really think civil and political rights has to come first because it's only when you have voice that you can demand redistribution, that you can demand policies that will benefit the majority of the people, and that you can kick out an elite, which is grabbing most of the stuff for themselves. That's a relatively rare thing in human history, and it's even a relatively rare thing today, the ability to exercise political voice to demand more distribution and better economic policies. And I just don't see how the reverse uh, causation actually works. If you've got good economic distribution, in some sense, that means you need to have fewer civil and political rights because you need constantly to be repressing demands for um, some to get more than others. Well, I think that civil and political rights without some kind of meaningful socio and economic foundation are just delusional. Like they don't actually exist. I think we can say that they exist, but someone who is living in the rural part of a poor country that is barely able to feed their family, has no roof over their head, and can't get access to water, is not casting a real vote. And they are not in a position to make demands of their government. They're not even in a position to know what's possible in the government. So I agree with you, I think, <laughs> that we need a foundation of civil and political rights, but you still need a socioeconomic underpinning. And then you can see how close a society wants to get to economic equality or equality of things and resources. You know, maybe the international human rights idea of a minimum core is what's relevant here. You have to have a certain basic level for everybody. And then, you know, they have the idea that states aren't obligated to deliver, you know, everything to everybody immediately, but you have to deliver the minimum core and only then can you expand on it. So, you know, maybe there's a minimum core to make democracy possible, and that would be a way to square the circle. Yeah, but I think the complicated part is what is the minimum core in the context of creating meaningful civil and political rights? And that brings us back to Anderson, which is I don't envision it as five potatoes, a roof, and access to water. I think you need a lot more than that in order to have someone be able to meaningfully participate in a democracy. And that's where we start moving ourselves closer to the center so there is some measure of equality so that you can have real citizens that are exercising their civil and political rights. The chicken and the egg. 
Entitled is a part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network and is produced with the support of Yale and University of Chicago Law Schools. Our show is produced by Matt Hodup and Leah Sisreen. Thanks for listening.